In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a life therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash gold. The Peter Schiff Show. Markets had a very strong day today, although I guess strong is a relative word now. I mean, the Dow was up 469 points, about two and a quarter percent. I mean, during normal times, that would be considered a big up day. But I mean, it's just another Thursday, uh, given what's been going on. But you know, what really led the market higher was the big move up in oil prices. Oil was up almost $5 a barrel today. It's about a 25% move, which I think is the single biggest percentage gain that we've ever had uh, in the oil market in any one day. Uh, and so the oil stocks led the way higher. We, we've been seeing some strength in the oil stocks even before this big move, uh, particularly the better capitalized names that ultimately stand to benefit uh, from all the bankruptcies that are going to befall so much of the American oil industry. Uh, but that was really a big catalyst. I think it started earlier this morning. I was reading a story about the Chinese now saying that they're going to be uh, buying oil, right? They're going to be uh, filling up their reserves with oil, which seems like a smart move for the Chinese to make. After all, they got to get rid of their treasuries. Uh, I think the whole world is exiting the treasury market. Uh, that's why the Federal Reserve is buying so many of them. But I think uh, one of the things that the Chinese should be buying other than gold is oil. I mean, they're going to need oil anyway, and oil has real value as opposed to U.S. treasuries, which basically have none. Uh, so while oil is so cheap, and treasuries are so expensive. I mean, that's a great trade to sell out your treasuries and buy oil. So I think I, I heard that early, and I think that was part of the reason that oil was up 
maybe a dollar and a half or so. And then there was some rumors that came out. I think Donald Trump might have uh, started it, that there was a negotiation going on between OPEC, between Russia. Uh, they were coming together to reduce production. And so this really sent oil prices up and oil stocks uh, followed and that you know, led the whole market. And we ended up closing you know, near the highs of the day. Uh, we had, you know, uh, an earlier sell-off. We opened higher and we were selling off, but we managed to uh, recover some strength uh, late in the day. In fact, the, the smaller indexes, Russell 2000, only up about half as much as the Dow, you know, not benefiting with the oil stocks. And that index was actually negative, turned negative, uh, getting close uh, to the close, but then managed to rebound back into positive territory. But look, I, I can see why uh, a rebound on the price of oil is good for oil stocks, at least some oil stocks. But, you know, there's a lot of oil companies that $20 a barrel, $25 a barrel, I mean, it's not going to make a difference. They're still losing a ton of money. You know, Whiting Petroleum, which is one of the biggest players in the Bakken that had a lot of debt, uh, they just filed for bankruptcy. And there's a lot more bankruptcies to come. And it doesn't really matter, $25 oil, $20 oil. I mean, even if we go to $40, $50 oil, you still have a lot of companies that just can't make money at that oil price. Now, they were kept afloat the way a lot of other companies were kept afloat by all the cheap money. And, you know, while the money is still cheap, you know, if the federal government wants to borrow it, right, Treasury yields are at record lows, but corporate yields are exploding, right? The spreads are widening. That's a big problem. And so a lot of these highly leveraged oil companies, just like a lot of highly leveraged other companies, and I think I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later in this podcast, um, but, you know, they, they can't afford it anymore. So the, the business models are collapsing. So this is not going to help. Right. So all those bankruptcies, all the layoffs in the oil sector are not going to stop because oil prices go up, you know, to twenty five dollars a barrel or even if they go significantly higher. Uh, but it is a negative for the rest of the economy. I mean, the, the rest of the economy benefits from higher oil prices. I mean, yes, I mean, the lenders, the banks, right, they're, they're suffering because they loan money to the oil companies. But again, they're still going to suffer this, even with this rally. But you have a big segment of the, uh, of the population that buys oil. A lot of businesses use oil, and the cheaper, the better. And so to the extent that oil prices are going up in a way that doesn't really help bankrupt oil companies, but does kind of shorten the lifeline that a lot of consumers and businesses had from cheap oil, I mean, it's actually a negative for a lot of the economy. So I'm not really sure why the entire market is rallying. I can see big oil rallying, the ones that have lower costs and better balance sheets. Yeah, this is great news for them, but it's not good news for, uh, for everybody else. In fact, we got some really, really bad news that shouldn't really have surprised anybody. You know, we got the jobless claims that came out before the market opened. And, you know, it seemed like the jobless claims were actually a catalyst for a rally in the dollar. I mean, initially, the, the stock market, which was up, right, the futures were trading higher pre-open. I mean, it was a big rally. And the market actually sold off negative uh, pre-open uh, based, I think, on the catalyst of this shockingly bad uh, unemployment number. I mean, it was much bigger than what everybody thought. It was actually twice as big as the record-breaking number that we got last week. Last week, it was 3.3 uh, million claims. It was originally reported at 3.283 million, and it was revised upward to 3.07 million. Uh, they were looking for another like 3.3 million for the most recent week. Instead, 
we got 6.648 million claims in one week for unemployment. So now over the last two weeks, we have 10 million Americans who have now filed for unemployment. Now, of course, there's more filing now. We'll find out when we get the the claims uh, on next Thursday. So who knows how high this number is going to go? Uh, But it's now so bad, right, that I I finally heard today, Neil Cash Carey, right, from the Federal Reserve, finally came out today, finally. And he said, well, looks like the U.S. economy is, is in recession. Oh, really? Right. I mean, oh my, what a shocker. I mean, what a revelation that Cash Carey can now admit the obvious that the U.S. is in a recession. I mean, it, it took this. It took 10 million people filing for unemployment in the span of two weeks for somebody from the Fed to actually say the R word. You know, the irony of it is I talked about this, too. Um, J- Jerome Powell was on uh, 60 Minutes like two weeks ago. And I forget who interviewed him, but the guy flat out asked uh, Powell, is the U.S. headed for recession? And Powell's answer was, no, I don't see any evidence that we're going into recession. I mean, that's got to be the most ridiculous statement ever. Is it even possible that Powell couldn't see this? That even though everything was written clearly on the wall that we were going to have a recession, that the guy still couldn't read that writing? Is that even possible? I mean, I think that it's so ingrained, you know, the DNA of anyone from the Fed to deny any recession is coming. I mean, you can never admit it. You have to wait until nobody can deny that it's there to finally reluctantly admit that we have a recession. And so now, I mean, the Fed, I guess they, you know, they got no choice now. They can't deny it. And the reason they always want to deny it is they're hoping that by denying it, they can delay it from happening, right? They're afraid if they admit there's a recession, then they're going to you know, precipitate the recession. At the minute someone from the Fed says a recession is coming, then consumers and businesses are going to start bracing for the recession and cause it or cause it to begin even sooner. So they're hoping if they just deny, 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 you know, maybe it won't even happen, right? Maybe they can wish it away. And so they just try open mouth operation. But clearly that was a failure. And the U.S. economy is in recession. But the problem is, it's not just any recession. It's going to be a depression. And again, it's not the coronavirus that is causing it. I mean, the coronavirus is the catalyst or the pin or whatever you want to, you know, you want to call it. And the coronavirus is a problem. I mean, even a healthy economy would have to deal with the problem. But we don't have a healthy economy. We had a bubble economy. That was the problem. It's because we're so ill-prepared. For the coronavirus or for any problem for that matter. That is the problem. That's the greater problem. Although the greatest problem is the Fed's solution, right? That's going to cause far more damage than the virus itself as far as the economy is concerned. But, you know, to get into really what's going on now, because Warren Buffett, right? I mean, he has a famous saying that when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked. And, you know, I mean, Buffett is a smart guy. I mean, you know, I, I don't agree with Buffett on everything, but there are a lot of things that I agree with him on, and you have to admire his success. And uh, that's a saying that I I thought was a pretty good one. Uh, and what's happened right now, really, with this coronavirus is the coronavirus basically is why the tide went out, right? I mean, it caused that have to happen. And now people are seeing just who's been swimming naked. And the problem is a lot of people, a lot of companies have been skinny dipping, and now it's apparent. 
And that is, again, why I said on the podcast yesterday, you can't unscramble an egg, right? People are now realizing what we had, that we didn't have an actual recovery. We had the illusion of a recovery. The illusion was created by the Fed. And what you had was a bunch of flawed business models, overly leveraged companies that were being kept afloat by cheap money and their customers and their consumers were over leveraged and being kept afloat by cheap money. And the governments were being kept afloat. So everybody was riding on that tide of cheap money. And now the tide's gone out. And uh, this is a big disaster that is being revealed, right? It is being laid bare, which is why things aren't gonna go back to the way they were ever. It is impossible. Even long after the, the quarantines are over and everybody's got the all clear to go out in public again, that's not going to solve the problems that pre-existed this condition. They're there. And the other problem is that the Federal Reserve, right, with its current stimulus, is making all of those problems worse. And now we're going to have to deal with the consequences of not what the Fed is doing now. And not what the Fed did in 2000, but what the Fed did in 2008, and also what the Fed did in 2001. In fact, what the Fed did throughout the 1990s. There are a lot of chickens that are finally coming home to roost. And, you know, one person who was pointing out a lot of this stuff on CNBC today, and I don't often, you know, comment uh, favorably on CNBC, but they did a long interview with Jim Chanos, who said a lot of good stuff. You know, a lot of stuff that, that I've been saying on my podcast, and now he's saying it. Uh, on CNBC, and they gave him plenty of time uh, to lay this out. And this was a lot of bad news that CNBC viewers aren't accustomed to hearing. Uh, but he did a good job of, of, of laying it out. And he talked about a couple of industries in particular that he's shorting. And so obviously, you know, he's talking his book too, because he's betting that these companies go down and he's probably going to make a lot of money on these bets. Uh, you know, he, he was talking about uh, 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 one company, a, a Chinese company that was down 75 percent on the open that turned out they were cooking the books. And he had covered that short uh, right on the open, and made a lot of money. He was talking about Grubhub, which he was already short. I think when he started talking about it, it was down 5 percent at the end of the day, down 10 percent. But he really laid it out uh, in a very made a very strong case. But what he was really describing was part of the bubble. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold.
Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. He talked a lot about the restaurant companies, you know, and I've been talking about these companies, but he really described the the situation because a lot of these big publicly traded uh, companies that, you know, franchise out uh, these popular uh, uh, restaurants, a lot of these companies have a lot of debt. I mean, they acquired a lot of debt when, when debt was cheap, they took on a lot of debt and they own a lot of real estate and they rent that real estate to their franchisees who not only pay them rent as tenants, but who also pay these licensing fees to operate these franchises. And these franchisees, many of them own multiple restaurants, and they bought these restaurants by borrowing money. So they're all levered up. So you have a highly leveraged landlord renting to a highly leveraged tenant. The whole thing is a gigantic house of cards. And this whole thing is imploding right now because the cost of credit to corporations has gone way up. And, and so the, the, the bubble has popped and the air is gushing out. And these restaurants have had a lot of other problems too that cheap money has been masking. One of them I've been talking about has been the ratcheting, the success of ratcheting up of the minimum wage. You know, these companies are big payers of minimum wage. And now the minimum wage has just gone up even more with the mandate that these companies provide paid leave uh, which is another way of increasing uh, labor cost. So a lot of these companies are going to implode. They are going to fail and go bankrupt. It doesn't matter that people uh, you know, are going to go back to the restaurants. A lot of these restaurants aren't going to exist to go back to because the owners of these franchises are going to go broke. And if you remember, a lot of the jobs that have been created during this so-called recovery have been in the food service industry. Those jobs are going to go away and they're not coming back, you know, and, you know, another uh, industry that uh, uh, Chamos had some harsh words for was the gig economy, right? The Ubers and the Grubhubs and all these different companies. And what are the points he made? And again, I've been talking about this, but now in particular, because this new round of, you know, super unemployment bailout where, where everybody gets $600 extra a week. 
This applies to gig economy workers, people who are technically self-employed. See, normally if you're self-employed, you know, you can't get unemployment because you can't fire yourself, right? I mean, and technically you can't get unemployment if you quit, right? You have to be fired. And if you work for yourself, I mean, you really can't fire yourself. Uh, so uh, people that are self-employed are really not going to get um, unemployment, especially if they're not paying uh, for any unemployment. They're not you know, paying weekly into an unemployment fund, right, for the insurance. And But now they're all being covered by this uh, federal program. But what he is pointing out is that as a result of this, it is highly likely that there is going to be a national effort on the part of the federal government to force all of these gig companies to classify or reclassify all of their independent contractors as employees so that uh, they will be entitled to these so-called benefits. But by doing that, they're going to increase the cost by at least 20%. At a minimum, it's going to cost maybe more than that. Uh, and then, of course, not only do they have to deal with all those mandates and taxes and requirements, but now you got overtime issues to deal with. Because when these guys are independent contractors, I mean, they could drive an Uber for 10 hours a day, 12 hours if they want, I guess. Uh, but if they do that as employees, you're going to have to pay them time and a half or you know whatever the rules are. Uh, so this is going to destroy these business models. Because the main business model of a lot of these gig, gig companies is that they can arbitrage the labor costs. They can undercut the old school companies because of the lower labor costs. So the cab companies, traditional cab companies, have employees driving the cars, uh, and Uber's got independent contractors. That's why, generally, if you take an Uber, it's a lot cheaper than a cab. I mean, it's usually 20%, 30% cheaper. Sometimes it's 50% cheaper. But if they all become employees, that gap is going to narrow significantly to the point where it may not be worth it. You know, sometimes, you know, you call up an Uber, you got to wait five, 10 minutes. You know, there might be a cab sitting right there. You know, you come out of a hotel, you come out of an airport, there's a cab right there, but you want to save a little money. So you walk a little further and you wait longer to get the Uber. Well, if the cost is not that much cheaper, you're not going to do that. So all these business models are going to blow up. But the whole, the other business model that, that, that Chamos didn't talk about on his interview, but he's talked about it before and I've agreed with him on it, is the other business model that's going to implode is where investors subsidize consumers, right? By, you know, buying stock and allowing companies to operate at a loss, to price their products below cost to grab market share, which has been a problem competitively for smaller companies that actually needed to make a profit because they didn't have stock to sell. Uh, and so this is going to blow up. All these companies are going to fail. But what happens now is prices are going to be going up across the board. Prices are going up because now when the money losing companies are out of business and no longer selling, selling stuff at a loss, the companies that are still in business are going to be able to raise prices to generate the profits that they need. And so that's part of this inflationary spiral that's going to be going on. But another industry is going to be the, the automobile industry. You know, we saw some really bad numbers uh, coming out of uh, G GM and Ford, and these stocks are getting clobbered uh, once again. But, you know, I think they're going bankrupt again. I mean, I predicted. I mean, I was on CNBC with Diane Swank, and that, that interview is up there on YouTube somewhere. But I was on there. And I predicted years before the 08 financial crisis that GM was going to go bankrupt. 
I can I can see this was going to happen. I specifically said GM is going bankrupt. And she took so much offense to that. She was like, oh, my God, have you ever been there? Have you been to the auto plants? There's no way. I mean, she was like singing the praises of, of, of GM. Meanwhile, a few years later, they went bankrupt exactly uh, the way I said they would, which is why she's still on CNBC and I'm not because she got it completely wrong. And I got it right, although they have Chanos on. So, you know, they, it, it's not like they only have people that get it wrong on just generally. Uh, but but in any event, so I predicted that GM would go bankrupt years before the financial crisis happened. I mean, that was the pin. I could tell that they would they would go bankrupt. But the problem is the government made the mistake of bailing them out, which they did. And the reason they did it is because, you know, they bailed out Chrysler. Chrysler got bailed out a second time. The first auto bailout was the bailout of Chrysler. And Chrysler should have been allowed to fail when they originally bailed it out. Right. But but they they set a bad precedent. But now Chrysler's not even an American company anymore because after the second bailout, they got bought. Chrysler is now owned by a Dutch holding company, which is controlled by the Italians. So why did we bail them out so an Italian family can own it? I mean, it, the whole thing is absurd. But by setting that precedent, you know, we you know moral hazard. So then we bailed out GM. We bailed out Chrysler again. Ford is the only company that didn't get bailed out. I think next time Ford's going to get bailed out too. Because what's going on, and it's not just that, you know, auto sales are down because people are confined to their houses. And so they're not going to showrooms and looking at new cars. That's just part of it. The bigger part is that the auto debt bubble has also popped. People are not going to be able to take out six or seven year, eight year loans to buy their cars. People aren't going to be able to roll the negative equity from their trade-in into their new car. So America's car buying days, at least new car buying days, are over. The vast majority of Americans are not going to buy new cars anytime soon, years and years and years, which means who is GM and Ford going to sell their cars to? Where are, are their customers? Their customers are broke and they can't borrow any more money. And technically, the government who is lending the money is broke, too. So this is, again, it's going to be another uh, collapse of these of these companies. But all of this, again, this is the entire bubble economy that has is now obvious, right? It should be obvious now that the coronavirus has brought out the tide. And everybody can now see what I've been saying. I've been talking about all these companies and all these people swimming naked for years, right? But nobody could see it. Well, now it's obvious. Now, it's still crazy. Some people still don't see it. They still think everything is going to go back the way it was. But slowly but surely, even the village idiot is going to wake up to this reality. Now, every Thursday, right, we get the Fed's balance sheet. So I haven't seen the numbers uh, this week. So I'm popping them up now live so I can take a look at the balance sheet. And the balance sheet is up by 557.3 billion. That's one week. Remember, remember. They did about the same last week. The balance sheet was up 586 billion. So actually, this was a little bit smaller than last week. But if you add the two weeks to, together, you've got an expansion of the balance sheet of about 1.1 trillion in two weeks. Now remember, the entire Fed balance sheet grew by a little over three trillion. It was about eight nine hundred billion or something like that before the 08 financial crisis. And then the highest it got when QE3 was over, before they started tapering, it got to four and a half trillion. 
from under a trillion, it just grew to 5.8 trillion, right? We're now 1.3 trillion bigger than the peak before quantitative tightening. And it's two weeks Two, of course, there was a little bit that they were doing before, right? They were doing the repos. And so the balance sheet had already started to grow. So, you know, some of that happened before this two weeks, this two weeks, but that was most of it. But I mean, this is insane. The, the rapidity with which this balance sheet is blowing up. Let me take a look at what happened to the money supply because we also get the money supply numbers uh, when we get the balance sheet numbers. And money supply was up. Oh, get this. <laughs> this is a shocker. So last week, the money supply was up by $170 billion, which was a big week. This week, or the most recent week, ended March 23rd, right? That was my birthday. The money supply grew by $436.1 billion in one week. That is massive inflation. You know, I've talked on this podcast before about how the money supply numbers used to be really important. They were very important in the 1970s. People waited for these money supply numbers because they were worried about inflation in the 1970s. They're not worried now. They should be. They will be. These are going to be big numbers again. I've talked about that. It used to be the money supply. Then it became the trade deficit that nobody cared about. Well, you know what? They're going to care about trade deficits again, too. They're going to care about money supply. Everything old is new again, right? The 70s show is coming back in, in living color, right? We're going to have massive stagflation. And these numbers are just showing that, you know, the gold price was up today. We we're up about, what, $22. Uh, we're back above um, uh, 1600 around almost 1620 Silver had a strong day, too, uh, today. Gold stocks, very strong, you know, still down on the year. I mean, incredibly so. You know, uh, Jeff Gunlock uh, recently did a call. And, you know, I agree with a lot of the stuff that Jeff said. But one of the things that uh, Jeff recently announced was that he had sold his gold stocks which uh, doesn't seem to be a smart move to me. I mean, we'll see what happens. I mean, he's worried that gold stocks are going to go down before they go up. And that's true. I mean, that might happen. I mean, nobody should own gold stocks uh, without the understanding that they could go down. And that, that's a risk that I'm willing to take. And that's a risk that anybody who owns any stock has to be willing to take, that they could go down. Because all stocks could go down. I mean, they could go bankrupt. You know, a lot of them do. A lot more of them will. People are going to be surprised. Uh, by how many companies that they thought were solid are going to are going to go bankrupt, right? But in any event, um, but I think Gunlock is wrong to be selling a stock. I think the risk is worth the reward because I think the real risk about gold stocks is not that you own them and they go down, but that you don't own them and they go way up. So that's the risk I don't want to take. I don't want to take the risk that I'm caught with my pants down here, that I'm I'm in cash because I'm so worried about the stocks going down that I missed the move up. You know, I think these stocks are going to have a spectacular move in a single day because I think there's going to be something is going to happen overnight while we're asleep. Something's going to happen in the dollar. Something's going to happen in the bond market. And the world's going to change between the time we go to sleep and the time we wake up because I think our fate is going to be sealed in Asia, to be honest with you. And so no one's going to really be awake. Uh, and, and so, you know, I don't want to wake up in that predicament. And so I don't know, you know, maybe a gun lock will get back into his trade in time. I don't know. I just don't want to take that chance. I, I'd, I'd, I'd rather own the stocks and have them go down. But I do think that you've got to wait, make sure that you own the right stocks, right? That's why I've been recommending that people, you know, look at my gold fund or a, a managed account managed by Adrian Day 
at my company, at your Pacific Asset Management, because I think that you want to make sure that you've got the best stocks. Because yes, it is possible that gold companies can go bankrupt if they you know, have the wrong management, they have too much debt, their deposits aren't what they claim. Uh, so you got to make sure that you have somebody who's watching your portfolio, who knows what he's doing or she's doing, has experience in the industry. And I, I think Adrian has got uh, the best experience out there and the best track record. That's why I hired him. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the Europe Pacific Gold Fund, I think we should be buying it. I mean, anybody who uh, took uh, Gunlock's advice and sold their gold stocks should take my advice and buy them back before it's too late and maybe take a look at my uh, my gold fund. But, you know, I was um, joking around, uh, you know, on, on, on Twitter earlier today, just kind of really surveying uh, the landscape and just making some points about what's happened to America that I think are significant and that should not be lost on people because, you know, you look around now and, you know, everybody is looking to the government for help, right? Oh, this is a, um, you know, a terrible crisis and people are losing their jobs and businesses are losing money. And so the government has to do something, right? The Federal Reserve has to do something. You know, I got, I read another one of these crazy articles in the Atlantic today uh, about, where they had a picture of a helicopter, or not a helicopter, a bomber, dropping um, cash. You know, again, referencing uh, Milton Friedman, helicopter money, saying it's time for helicopter money. Again, not recognizing that Friedman was being facetious, that he was trying to explain why it doesn't work. The idea was like, hey, you idiot, what you're describing is like dropping money from helicopters. And then the people would get, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, clearly that doesn't work, right? We can't help the economy by just dropping money from helicopters. So that's why Friedman used that analogy to show the absurdity of monetary policy. Yet now people don't even understand the absurdity of it because they think he was serious, right? I mean, I didn't mention it, you know, like it was like April Fool's was yesterday, but it's like a joke. And these fools are believing this joke, I mean, the article, I think, was written on April Fool's Day, so maybe it does make the writer an April Fool. Uh, but, yeah, it's not going to work. Printing money, their Fed is doing it, but it's not going to work. So everybody wants the Fed to help by printing money as if that helps. It doesn't help. It just makes the problem worse or adds new problems to the problems that we already have. But they expect the Fed to do something as if they can. They want the government to do something as opposed to saying, wait a minute. We have to deal with this ourselves. Yes, this is a problem, and we're just going to have to deal with it. We're going to have to tough it up, right? Because once upon a time, America was a nation of rugged individuals. That's what defined Americans. We didn't want anything from government. I mean, even Jack Kennedy, right? A Democrat said, ask not what your country can do for you, right? But that's all we're doing now. What can our country do for us? We want the country to do for everybody. Rugged individuals never wanted anything from government. My grandparents came here. Nobody wanted anything from this government. All they wanted was freedom. They wanted to be left alone. They wanted their rights protected. That's it. They didn't want to take anything from anybody else. They weren't looking for the government to bail them out or to give them a handout. That's not what this country used to be. But unfortunately, that's what this country is. And I thought back uh, to the days when Americans really were rugged. You know, think about the pioneers, right, that settled the West. Think about this. Think about Americans who 
basically had to sell everything they own. I mean, the government wasn't handing out any money uh, for the settlers. I mean, yes, there was land. If you if you went and got that land, you didn't have to buy it, but it was just land in the middle of nowhere. It's not like it didn't have anything on it. It was just land, raw land, right? And so if you could make the trip, and it would take, you know, four, five, six months by covered wagon to get out to that free land where you had to then work it from scratch. But there was no money, bailout money. The settlers didn't get any checks from the government, right? They didn't get anything. They did it all themselves. And, and think about the risks that you took just to get there. I mean, a lot of people just died along the way. I mean, first of all, they got injured. I mean, you know, on these covered wagons. I mean, it's not like they were, you know, they, were, they had paved roads and they were driving around in cars. They had, you know, flimsy, you know, horse and buggies that they had. And, and you know, so there was problems. They got injured. They got sick, disease. They died from disease. Sometimes they died from starvation or they got killed by the Indians. You know, I mean, I guess the Native Americans now, but, you know, they call them Indians back then. And a lot of them got killed by Indians. I mean, so... Think about what it took for American pioneers to settle the West. And now think about the average American today looking for the government to bail them out, looking for a government handout. Could Americans today, could they settle the West? Would we be able to be pioneers like our ancestors? I mean, not a chance. The country that we have today couldn't do that. And in fact, then I started thinking about the, the, the idea that, well, what if, what if we had today's government back then? Right. What if we had this nanny state? Right. Well, I mean, I don't even think we could have even thought about settling the West. It would have been impossible. We never would have expanded beyond the East Coast. Could you imagine if all of these settlers, before they can get into their wagon, they had to get some kind of government permit? They had to do an environmental impact study. I mean, what if the uh, the buggies had to be compliant with some kind of safety code? Right. You know, they had to equip them with all kinds of safety belts or uh, different, you know, uh, pieces of equipment and their horses. And what if they had to have special licenses to operate these uh, these buggies and, and the horses? And what if they had to pay taxes? What if they had to, like, you know, file taxes somehow along the way and keep books and records of everything they were doing and then report back to the IRS? And, you know, what if what if they had to withhold? What if they had some helpers and they had to withhold taxes and they, they could get sued for discrimination. I mean, if all of today's, uh, you know, rules applied back then, I mean, you couldn't have gone anywhere. Nothing. I mean, I would laugh just thinking about what a stagecoach would look like with all these government safety requirements that was imposed on them. Uh, you know, and the way they'd have to go, we'd probably make some kind of deal with the Native Americans. I mean, the, the path to get out west, uh, we, you know, would probably take years based on the way they would they would carve the thing out. So, you know, we couldn't even do it. Even if Americans, you know, I mean, back then, even with the character that we had at the time, if we had today's government, we couldn't do it. So we are a shadow of our former self. We are not uh, the type of people that we used to be, which is very unfortunate because, you know, being an American used to be very special. In fact, a lot of people tell me one of the best podcasts I've recorded is one called What It Means to Be an American. I've, I've mentioned it on, on this podcast again. And I know when I mentioned it last time, I checked on the uh, on YouTube and I saw that more people had gone and looked at it and mentioned that they went there only because I mentioned it. So I'll mention it again if you still have, haven't read it. But it, the title of it is what it means to be an American. And I think I probably recorded it 
maybe on a, you know, uh, on a 4th of July or something like that. Uh, but a lot of people don't understand, you know, what America meant and what America was, because all they know is what America is. Uh, but, you know, you've got to really uh, learn a lot about American history uh, to really appreciate our heritage. But unfortunately, if you learn a lot about history, you'll understand what's going to happen in our future. You know, I also put up a quote on uh, on YouTube today. Uh, and uh, it's, you know, it's a very uh, a poignant quote. And it's from H.L. Mencken. And if you don't know who he is, you know, look him up on the Internet. Uh, but he famously paraphrased Thomas Jefferson. And you all know who Thomas Jefferson is. And what he said is that the people get the government that they deserve and they deserve to get it good and hard. And, you know, I, I really uh, sympathize with that sentiment. Right. Uh, but I think in this case, I think the American public is going to get it so good and so hard uh, that nobody deserves this. Right. As complicit as we all were in allowing this to happen, this collapse is going to be so catastrophic. The losses are going to be so great that nobody deserves this. It's going to happen. Right? And, you know, it's not any one person's fault. Uh, it's just what is going to happen. It is the consequences of decades and decades of extravagance. And the old saying about the piper having to be paid is a saying for a reason. And we've been listening to this tune for a long time. And so we've accumulated quite a bill. And unfortunately, uh, that bill is coming due. And my hope as an American is that more Americans can discover what it meant to be an American and what this country was. Because once it's completely leveled, right, we have an opportunity, if we seize it, to rebuild it to rebuild it on a solid foundation of capitalism and sound money.